This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Alright, hello and welcome to a... Another episode of Misa and Thomas, a physically damaged episode of Misa and Thomas, but I am what they say in film as a warrior, as they all do. Oh, People man. forget that um, not all warriors wear capes. No, they put on headphones and put that microphone in front of them and they go to work when they cannot see out of their right eye because their right eye is driving them batshit crazy and it hurts like hell. And you don't know what's going on. But you know what? The hypochondriac in you is looking away from WebMD for a little bit to focus on the podcast at hand, the movie that we're going to talk about at hand, and all of those great things. Philip, you say, is down there in Atlanta. Philip, good evening. How are you? It sounds uh, it sounds like you're, you're sub, subtweeting uh, Hammurabi's code there a little bit. An eye for an eye, you know? Maybe, I mean, if, you're, if your right eye is is causing you some some pain why don't you just why don't you just take it out i mean why not substitute it exactly if i was a real man i would do it if i was a real (sighs) podcaster if i was really really committed to my craft i would i would do it but unfortunately i'm a coward um he's a coward (laughs) actually i think that i think that's more the bible i don't think that i think that's the bible that's not hammurabi's code hammurabi's code is an eye for an eye that's like vengeance i think it's the bible that says uh if your if your right eye is causing you to send gadget out or something like that, yeah, don't don't do that. Don't I, I I'm not an advocate of. Well, I'm uh, also just not a pain guy, so I don't think I would that would go well. And I'm not a big blood guy. Clearly, no, not <laughs> clearly. Really. So we're not going to review. We're not going to review 300 ever. No. Is, is that or any Quentin Tarantino movie? Well, no. Reservoir Dogs is always. Oh, that's me. the bloodiest of them all. But it's great. I said Dude, real blood just... in person, like up close, like my own blood or people around. Like no, that like I would faint if I like walked in on like a just a car accident or something. Like the night, or, girl, like or worse, like a like a Red Cross blood bank, like a like a blood drive. Oh, is that the like your worst nightmare? I get from that, by the way. <laughs> so I remember they at um undergrad they always had these blood uh vans <laughs> i don't know what to call them just these vans full of blood always weirded me out but they came all the time and a couple times they stopped me and asked me and they're like hey do you know what your blood type is and i was like no and they're like would you get blood and i was like no i'm not really a blood guy and when <laughs> i say <laughs> no what are you well, they're what, are you like, what does that even marshmallows mean? and twinkies yeah and i was like i just no I think uh, it's not going to go well if I do that. And they're like, what does that even mean? And I was like, well, 
When I was in middle school, I just refused to like get my finger pricked because I didn't like that sensation or just seeing the blood come out of my finger. So um, the idea of giving blood and just not looking at the blood being taken out of my body, it's just, it's not realistic. So there's a very real chance I'm going to faint. And um, yeah, so it's just, it's just not going to happen. Unfortunately, I am not going to give blood wow. voluntarily. So never give this guy a blood transfusion. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also not an organ donor. Just all kinds of just selfish oh. acts on my Yeah, I find I find that a bit odd. Like why not donors if you need them, you know, if they're no particular use to you in the grave. They're mine. Uh, I say they're mine. <laughs> <laughs> you have a stoic heart, a, the most stoic heart of them all, and so it it needs to be buried with you in, in completion i just don't like so like the whole thing about like whether or not they would uh be less likely to revive you or save you if they saw that you're an organ donor always weirded me out because as a cynic mm-hmm. it always spoke to me a little bit where i'm like that i wouldn't rule that out wouldn't rule it out yeah because i know nurses are excited when people get on motorcycles because they know motorcycles lead to help <laughs> yeah. for other people because those people are going <laughs> to eventually crash and give up their organs to people that need them and aren't doing dumb things like riding your motorcycle in 2020. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying. Some of the, some of that, uh, some of the things that happen on motorcycles. Yeah. I, I have a hard time watching any of my friends, uh, get on them. How would um, the conversation with your mother go? Where you're like, mom, you know, <sighs> no, it wouldn't happen. It would, it would happen. <laughs> I, I, it, it, the, the immediate, shame and guilt of knowing that you know i'd be putting and i don't even even think it would be my mom at that point like i think it's probably i don't know hopefully i'd have a girlfriend or like be married or something by then okay it would just even cross my they mind. hatch mr philip say <laughs> let's get through one picnic date i before am you start playing the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> what you don't know is that i am a father of, of four beautiful children um i'm I'm projecting. Sorry, uh, this is. I was gonna uh, say this is unbelievable. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it is. It's, it's you're unraveling. I Five know, minutes in, I like ghastly. This. It's ghastly. Um, something you said uh, at the beginning was not all. Not all heroes wear capes, uh, and I just wanted to take uh, a couple of of minutes here just to acknowledge the 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 recent passing of a of a hero who most certainly. Uh, did not wear a cape, um, both in in real life uh, and on the big screen. This is um, Mr. Chadwick Boseman, who, you know, as a as a filmmaker and let alone a, a black filmmaker um, myself, you know, he was an ins- a massive inspiration to me, and and I'm sure uh, uh, many others um, who were in the filmmaking world, and I. I I'm remembering. I don't. I don't know if I told you the story, but I, I I saw. I remember seeing the premiere of of uh, Black Panther in New York back in I think it's February of 2018, and um, to our surprise, in, uh, the director Ryan Coogler was in the audience, and after the the screening, this was before the film came out, he gave a um, just a uh, like a 15 20 minute talk. Um, about his inspiration for the movie. And he talked about the similarities between, you know, growing up in, in predominantly, <clears throat> in the predominantly black part of Oakland that he grew up in and, and also, 
um, you know, making the trip to South Africa to search for inspiration for this film. And the way that he spoke of his working relationship with, with Chad, Chadwick Boseman, uh, really, really struck me because, um, he, he talked of him as if he embodied this, this preternatural kind of genius, um, and affinity for risk taking that, uh, Ryan Coogler as a director had never really seen before. And, and, you know, Chadwick Boseman was, <laughs> I would even venture to say like not even getting started in his career, you know, I mean, he really only came to, came to fame. Um, I think this was yeah, probably as early as, yeah, right. He came, came to fame in 2013 with, um, with 42, um, the, the Jackie Robinson flick. And, um, I remember when they were shooting that in Atlanta, um, but he, shot Atlanta. yeah, yeah. He shot, shot that in Atlanta and, and a lot of, um, I think a lot of Marvel films are actually were shot in Atlanta too, but just want to acknowledge that. I mean, we've, uh, I think, I think Hollywood and, um, the arts community has really lost a, a giant here. And, um, you know, he's left a legacy that I think is going to inspire certainly myself and, and many other actors, directors, writers for, for years to come. So may, may the man, may the warrior without a cape, uh, rest, rest in power. I still can't get over how he's able to hide this for four years. Yeah. Spike Lee confirmed he didn't know. Coogler yeah. didn't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that's possible. I really, yeah, really don't. It's a testament to his work ethic, but also there was a really good Twitter thread about this um, last night that I was reading through because they are, there's a certain part of Twitter that's like, oh, this is like, what's your excuse? Because this person persevered and did this while going through stage four cancer. And it, that's not the, what you should take away from this. It's just that that's how he was wired. But if you're going through Mm -hmm. stage four cancer, it's okay. If you don't want to go and keep producing, like go and be a movie star. Like it's okay. If it's just like taking a toll and you can't do those things. So we have to be very careful with the way we describe um, this sort of thing. But it, um, in terms of, what Chadwick was able to do while fighting a gravely illness is just remarkable. Like, yeah, it's remarkable. It's mesmerizing. I mean, he was training hours and hours a day, learning capoeira and, and kickboxing and obviously doing like a very strenuous, um, regimen preparing for black Panther. And that was, I mean, he was diagnosed back in 2016. And so, to have spent the past four years uh, just totally suffering in, in silence is – it is truly remarkable. I just want to read this short uh, statement from from Ryan Coogler that kind of captures captures um, uh, captures this. So he said, Chad deeply valued his privacy and I wasn't privy to the details of his illness. After his family released their statement, I realized that he was living with his illness this entire time I knew him. Because he was a caretaker, a leader, a man of faith, dignity, and pride, he shielded his collaborators from his suffering. He lived a beautiful life, and he made great art. Day after day, year after year, that was who he was. He was an epic firework display. I will tell stories about being there for some of the brilliant sparks till the end of my days. What an incredible mark he's left for us. Um, 
maybe he's he's uh, listening to the podcast now. Um, that that'd be a nice thought. So thanks, Chadwick, for for the inspiration, and um, we'll we'll absolutely miss you. Um, they have to cancel Black Panther too, right? I I don't you know. Re, you can't recast him. I think I think they're gonna have to. That yeah. would feel so. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And who? What actor wants to do that? Who wants to follow? Follow it up. I don't. I don't know. I don't think you can. Yeah, it's. Uh, I feel for. I feel for Ryan Coogler. I mean, he spent the the better part of the past like year and a half writing the sequel for. For Chadwick Boseman, I mean, obviously not for Chadwick Boseman, but the, his part was, you know, you, you make a sequel for someone and and you work with them before and you know, kind of where their strengths and um, where their strengths lie. So mm-hmm. I can only imagine, um, yeah, what that process is is like. Uh, but yeah, thoughts thoughts and prayers are definitely with his family and um, hopefully they'll be able to get through this difficult time. Absolutely. Um. This week's movie that we'll be talking about. Um, this was your pick, <laughs> Philip. This yeah. was uh, this was your pick because you wanted me to feel things this week, unlike you, who had no intention of feeling anything. So <laughs> I appreciate um, you going down that uh, that rabbit hole. But because um, we did, where'd you go, Bernadette? Another Richard Linklater movie. Um, opening thoughts about this film. Opening thoughts. Am I muted? No. I, I, okay. Um, Do you want me to mute? Opening. You? Th- Is it going to be bad? <laughs> Are these takes going to be bad enough? For no, me? no, no, I need no. To put they, the mute button on. No, I'll they're going to be fantastic. They're going to be fantastic takes, per usual. Um, well, it's funny, right? Because you said this was my pick, but it seems like it was your film. Mm. Um, kind of like last it, week, where my pick was Before Sunrise, but you. That was my film, man. Yeah. yeah, that was my jam. That was definitely my jam. Uh, you know, I thought this was this was a very straightforward film. Um, from what I understand of the novel, best-selling novel um, by Maria Semple, I believe it is. Um, Bernadette Fox is an incredibly complex character, and. The novel is told from um, – it's basically a compendium of, of various correspondence, letters, PDFs, um, postcards, etc. And it's told from the perspective of her daughter who is um, – I may be wrong <clears throat> about this, but from what, I, from what I think I gathered, essentially the, the novel is told um, more actively from the perspective of her daughter who is seeking – her mother and not only like in a physical sense, but like it, there's this, there's this sense of absenteeism around. Oh, that was a massive lightning bolt outside my window. Um, anyway, um, her daughter is seeking her mother, both in, in a physical sense and in in an emotional sense. And what I got from this film is, um, again, it's very straightforward. Like I kind of felt like, um, there were a lot of ups and downs and a lot of points where I didn't quite feel like I could latch on to 
to to Kate Blanchett's character. Um, and that's not like due to the acting. I think it was just due to the fact that um, she played this kind of aloof, agoraphobic, um, at times misanthropic, uh, middle-aged, um, brilliant woman who had kind of lost her her mojo, so to speak. Uh, she played that 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 end of the spectrum really well, and then she also, you know, fluctuated to the complete opposite side, where you know she became this um, incredibly energetic, incredibly um, active, and um, um, you know, borderline like manic character, um, who you could tell was like there was just something deeply special about her, and and it was really sad to see that this other, you know, more morose side of her uh, was was kind of um, cannibalizing her her creativity. <clears throat> I think that's a very long winded way of saying that. Um, I, I I really enjoy like the movie is 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 quintessentially I think about Kate Blanchett's performance um, and Kristen Wiig uh, as well as well as you know Billy I was Billy Crudup know, were in it. As I well. thought she was like the best actor in this movie by far. Kristen Wiig. Yeah, she owned this movie. <laughs> like Kristen Wiig's character was the first hour top notch. Like her being a um very rich liberal in a major city with just just so over the top and not understanding little things and just overlooking her own child's uh obvious flaw like just everything about her character was top notch and Kristen wig plays a very good um wealthy karen i think we should call it Yeah, yeah, I would say I, I definitely. I mean, there are some, there are some like, um, some class overtones. Not some class, like major class yeah, overtones. Yeah, Um, but I, I don't know. I'm, I've still yet to really form a strong opinion of this. It sounded like you had a strong opinion. Um, of the I, movie I left, or just Wake's performance. No, of, of the move of the yeah of the movie in general. Uh, I don't know if I have a strong opinion. I think it's more so. The back half is not good. So part of my issues with this movie is I think the first hour is very strong, and I think they do a good job of defining the relationship between B and Bernadette and their closeness and uh, LG's absence and like what's that what like what's going on there? Like obviously there's more at play. Um, obviously there's something going on with Bernadette, but like ultimately she is clearly unhappy, but the one thing that she is not unhappy about is B and will do anything for her tears up when they like sing time after time in the car, like clearly very close to her. And that's like the only thing that's keeping her head above water. It seems mm-hmm. like, I mean, she's passing out in like random shops in downtown Seattle and her husband's finding her there and just like, are you okay? Um, and then ask her to dinner as one does. Um, <laughs> I, I thought that was very strong. I thought the whole first hour strong, like the best thing in the movie is Bernadette and Audrey, Kristen Wiig's character going at each other and be standing up for her mom. And yeah. like that brutal nature of like, I, Audrey wasn't wrong. Like she was mean and it was rude, but everything she said about Bernadette was, was, true and like she was just very um cruel in the way she was saying it but she's also really upset because bernadette was just 
like LG defines later on, escaping and not taking responsibility and just pretending that she's not, she doesn't care or that she's overlooking these little things that she's too smart to overlook. Yeah. It's ridiculous. But um, I don't know. I thought this whole first first hour was great. Once <laughs> the we first get on the hour boat, was... once we get to Antarctica, <laughs> once that becomes a thing and once she escapes, yeah, downhill. Like, you just lose me. It, you, they should never have left Seattle. Like, that is the biggest problem with this movie is once they left Seattle, once they got on this boat, it it just lost a lot of momentum because that scene where she walks in and sees the FBI agent and her husband and the therapist and the um, the girl, like the, the person from the school who's trying to clearly finagle her way into uh, her husband's life as yeah. uh, the, the other woman. Like there are like that. That was a really great scene because it felt like the movie was building to that for an hour and a half. And yeah. then we're like, you know what? <laughs> the title of the movie is where'd you go Bernadette? And she's there like for the majority of the movie. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, I, I, I assume that that was just more of a, like, where have you been the last 20 years? Because yeah, you were this great thing. You were this amazing architect, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's just going to Antarctica for 45 minutes and them chasing her there um, was certainly a choice. And it was uh, it was not a choice I would have made. Do you agree with that sentiment, Philip? It, it's not a choice you would have made as her husband? No, it, as a director. I would just have cut that part out and just kept them in Seattle. I think Seattle was an important backdrop to this movie. And I think... Oh, okay. I see. Like, I think moving them to Seattle took a lot of bite out of everything. Where they wanted to be big over the top. And, like, it was very hokey once they got there and the the dad and the daughter finding her and eavesdropping on her phone call that she's <laughs> leaving to the family like it got super over the top and it was just lazy i thought the last 30 minutes was just really lazy filmmaking and storytelling and i don't think they should have done that at all well see here's the thing right i don't think it was lazy so much as just very plain and straightforward um i think i think richard linklater took a novel that was really complex that dealt with the insecurities and the unraveling of, of a brilliant, um, you know, architect woman in her field who is basically pioneering, uh, by default of, of being one of the top women, um, in, in architecture. Um, I think there's, there's, uh, there's an intellectual richness that is probably missing from, the way that the plot plays out, right? Like I think in her, even in her dialogue in, in Bernadette Fox's dialogue, we can, we get the impression that this is a woman who is absolutely rhetorically gifted. I mean, Mm. she says some incredibly colorful things and she almost strikes you not as an architect uh, or an artist for that matter, but just uh, a literary savant like i i I really really appreciated her (laughs) just just like the the sentimentality of her language and just her some some of the hyperbolic things that she would say and um like the way that she would you know 
deal with her, 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 her fear of interacting with people by like using this, um, this virtual personal assistant that, that doubled, you know, more as, as a, as, as kind of a therapist, like she's obviously telling, um, she's telling this virtual assistant in India that, yeah, I like, I need, you know, help with ordering, um, gear for my trip and I need this and that. But what these, what these, you know, uh, dictated instructions that she's, you know, writing, she's basically verbalizing these emails. They become more of a, of a window into her consciousness and a window into her, um, her dealing with like, where she is in her life right now and just the way that she manipulates and uses language is like incredible to me um and like i don't know maybe that's one of the the reasons that i found myself able to be engaged in this film but like just in terms of the plot it it did to your point like when they went to antarctica it just kind of felt a bit um a bit contrived right um And I can't really speak of from from of the perspective of whether or not that's like how accurate this the film was to the novel, um, but it sounds like you definitely <laughs> you definitely could have could have uh, could have stayed in Seattle the whole time. Yeah, because guess what? This movie is sad. This is a sad movie. Sad things are happening. She's going through stuff. She's going through depression. Seattle is a great backdrop for this kind of film. And I thought that worked really well. The elements around her, the rain, the cloudiness. Like, I just thought the, the setting was perfect for what she was going through and what this movie was trying to tell you about, um, dealing with, um, emotional distress and losing your passion and not knowing what to do, because this is what I was going to tell you about. Like why Bernadette, um, why I identified with her in a lot of ways in this movie is that Mm -hmm. one of the things, um, for me that's always scared me is I've been doing this for several years now. Right. And I've always known what I like to do. I've always had this passion for this thing. And I think I'm really good at this thing. And I'm just like, it's innate that I have to create and I have to do this stuff. So when they talked about her just not creating for 20 years and what that does to a human being, like scared the shit out of me because like part of yeah. Um, that thing when you do find it and then have it taken away, you're not going to do anything else. Not like you're going to pick something else up. She never picked anything else up. She's just surviving now, and that's a terrifying proposition. I think it's in, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting way of framing it, right? Because did is it that she didn't pick anything else up, or is it that she channeled her creative? you know, menace into something or her creative genius into, into a menace, you know, to a menace to society. That was the line that, that, that really got me, uh, Lawrence Fishburne and, um, his character, I think I mean, his yeah, the Paul, menace to society is really not even just that. It's just, you have nothing else to offer the world. Like you're just bad if you're not doing your thing. Like you're just, you're, you're an albatross. Hmm. It, it is a sad pro. I mean, do you, do you think that, I guess extending the film into a, whether or not it's a, it's a, it's a portrait of real life or the extent to which the story is a portrait of real life. Do you think that, um, do you think that it's a bit exaggerated that once a person who is like immensely creative loses that thing that 
that gives them spark, do you think that it's so unlikely that they'd be unable to pick up something else? Absolutely. This is something I've had conversations mm-hmm. with my parents about a multitude of times growing up. Um, yeah, no, yeah. there's there's no possibility for me not to pursue what I've always wanted to pursue. The idea of just closing that book and just doing something else doesn't doesn't exist. I, I literally couldn't, yeah. couldn't live without it. No, like it just my the, it, it's part of who I am. Like that's the other thing. It'd be like killing some part of you, and then just because I know no matter what what else I pick up, it will it will never come close to that same feeling I have when I when I write and when I do this podcast. Like it's just it, nothing will nothing will come close. And I've put so much time and I've put so much effort into all of this. I've spent so many hours, made so many sacrifices that the idea of just all right, well, let's go get into um, accounting. Hmm. <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah, I could see you becoming a menace to society if you had to become an accountant. If if you were if like someone, I don't know, like if someone were extorting you and were like, if you have to drop everything that you love and go do something really banal. Yeah, you would have to. Yeah, you'd have a problem with that. No, Speaking I mean, of I've that, tried it. And I've, I'm miserable. Like I've tried to do both and it just doesn't, doesn't work. I mean, um, you, you've dealt with the same kind of thing. You had a, you had a good job up there in New York from what I recall. And you were like, you know what? Filmmaking is actually my passion. Yeah. I mean, without getting into too much of the existential morass of all of this, because I mean, I, I, I really think that like the mind of a creative person is, is, really opaque even to the person him or herself Mm. um there's a line in this film that i really latched onto where uh you brought this up um you know be wow this is a massive lightning bolt (laughs) all this granite out here in stone mountain um be the weather guy so you have another column if uh the whole filmmaking or consulting doesn't work out you could be the the channel 11 weather guy phil do you I'll just I'll say where the lightning strikes are happening I love as they're how happening. The weather you are right now. Well, it's because I've got all of my equipment here plugged into the wall and wait the wall, know, not a surge protector. Well, it's a you know, it's definitely a surge protector, but like you know, <laughs> do those things work? Our house has been struck by lightning plenty of times. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, man. Mm-hmm. We've, we've uh, well, we live in the same neighborhood, lost. and I'm trying to think if I remember any light. I don't think so. I can ask my parents. I don't recall anything. Hmm. Yeah, we're, we're really weird, uh, leery of it. We, I mean, we've lost like televisions and internet really? and stuff. Yeah, it's happened huh. multiple times. That's part. Of, it's partially why we we cut down all the trees in our backyard. This is really interesting, by the way. Trees in my backyard being cut down. No, um, they, you top. cut them down <laughs> because your parents were just not very eco friendly. I thought it was because we hated oxygen. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just we're just like pro CO two. Hell yeah, uh, hell yeah. Um, <laughs> so in this in the car scene, B and um, B and Bernadette are singing time after time, and then she starts crying. Bernadette starts crying, and uh, and you know B wants to know if anything's wrong, and she and Bernadette says, you know, I just I just need you to know how hard it is for me sometimes. The banality of life. I retain the right to be moved by those little things no one notices. And I 
found s- such profound truth and connection in that statement because sometimes as a creative person, especially in, in this pandemic when the world is virtually shut down, um, you know, a, creative people are always searching for inspiration. They're always searching for an outlet to manifest their creativity. And in, in between those kind of peaks and valleys, um, life does seem a bit banal. Like it just, you just kind of carrying through. And this is why I completely empathize with you when you're saying you have to do I don't have Your a fucking body. choice. Like this is the way I describe <laughs> people. It's like I don't have a fucking choice. There is no fucking choice in my daily life where I can yeah. just wake up and be like, you know what? I'm not like I'm gonna feel fine if I don't record a podcast or write a piece today. That doesn't exist. Even if I wanted that to be the case, days where I haven't been able to do one or the other are horrid. I'm losing my shit. The majority Did of the day, you- I feel like I wasted 24 hours on this planet and I never feel worse than if I don't mm. do one of those things. It is the only thing that keeps me going. The only thing. How long have you known that about yourself though? A long time. <laughs> and how long, how long do you think you've actively decided to cope with it by creating uh at least 10 years yeah around 10 11 years that's really special i think it's really special because it's a gift and a curse right it a hundred it hundred percent is um because it is it is a very lonely life you know it's um makes relationships hard it makes friendships hard it makes it makes a relationship with yourself hard because you naturally become your own critic and like maybe people don't understand why you're so intense about things and <laughs> all of a sudden you end up you know marrying a microsoft executive and buying a, a million dollar nine thousand square foot house in seattle and i don't know you become bernard at fox um no no i don't think that's on my radar i've <laughs> i might add somebody different right now so no Okay. Okay. Well, I just I just want you to know the option is is available to you. If oh, you, you ever have you that. you want to set me up with a Microsoft executive? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't actually be surprised if you knew like a higher up at Microsoft, Philip. <laughs> hey. uh, I've got a I've I've got some friends in places. Maybe they're not high, but they're definitely in places. Hmm. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that was a metaphor or not. Um. My friends exist <laughs> and they are in places. Now, all I'm thinking about it's is the Nathan Fielder photo where he's like, have you seen that where he, the, the caption is um, having the time of my life with my best friends. They just are out of the picture. Something like that. They're out of the picture. Yeah. They're just out of the frame. Wow. The that's, uh, life, my friends, they're just out of the frame. savage. Yeah. What a savage thing to say about friends that may or may not exist. It's more depressing. It's just like, ha ha, see, I'm having a great time with my friends. And it's like, no, there's no one there. And you just, yeah, you cropped them out. No, you didn't. Um, <laughs> jokes on me. <laughs> <laughs> jokes on me, no friends. Um, <laughs> got him. Uh, a classic case of got him. Um, I just, yeah, I, I just empathize with where she's at because Bernadette, I mean, honestly, 20 years of not doing a podcast or writing, I don't know if I'd be in a better state than her. Like, it's interesting to think about if she didn't have 
her child, who should, by all accounts, as we find out in the movie, should not exist. Yeah. And I think yeah. that is an important part of this, is that it gave her life meaning without architecture. And obviously, there was a critical mass when they tore down her award-winning structure the what is it the 20 foot house what was it called the the 20 mile house 20 mile house and she did not handle that well she did not cope with that well and she just left um and she's been escaping and running ever since but one thing she has not run from is her daughter and her daughter points that out to her dad is like mom would not run from me and that was a really poignant point i think in this movie is that no matter what you're going, like what anybody's going through, no matter what kind of just internal trauma you're dealing with, that there are certain things in your life that you just, they're always going to be there and they're going to be steadfast and they're going to just remain a crucial part of who you are. And those little things, just whether you know it or not, are what keep you going keep your head afloat because you need those you need those life vests you need those other things outside of your passion because if you don't have them and that passion is stripped away from you this story only gets darker and ends with as the doctor points out uh probably suicide yeah it definitely can end in tragedy i mean she well just, just for for context um like this film is is and the and the book is about a, an an architect who um is has you know after 20 years of essentially putting down her craft to um to raise her daughter and ostensibly to be like a a, a stay-at-home mother uh starts to exhibit you know character traits that are really concerning to her husband and um, and to her and to the broader community. Like she becomes this uh, like very combative, just kind of bitter um, misanthropic person um, who stops, you know, basically starts like hoarding medication and uh, like prescription medication and, by all accounts, if you're looking from the outside in, this is a person who, um, you know, you can, you can, you can probably walk by on the street one day and, and have like a semi decent or normal conversation with, but on the inside is, is clearly dealing with something very, very difficult. And, and, um, it's, it's not clear like where the where the plot is uh is headed just from like y- your observations of her but it's clear that you know there's some potential there for like some self-inflicted pain or or even suicide so um one of the things that i think this film also brings up is the fact that it's really hard to know when other people are going through things. Um, even the people that are closest to you, right? Because the husband LG 
essentially has this admission at the end of the film where he's like, this is all my fault. And I kind of agreed with him. <laughs> he's kind of like, I allowed you to stop doing the thing that clearly made you who you are. And I should have, I should have known. I should have seen that. See, I disagree. That's interesting. You bring this up because I, I went the other way. And I was like, eh, no, it's on her. It's always on the person. Like you, it should come within. It's innate. And if and, and there's no telling whether or not she would have responded accordingly to his pleas to get back into it and to to get back into architecture and to bounce back. Like by. I, I don't know. I would assume it would not go as perfect and neat as he thinks in his head of like, oh, if I just pushed harder, she would have avoided all of this and all of this mess that she currently finds herself in with different colored um, medicine in her little <laughs> just chest of drawers of just all kinds of different pills. But um, I don't think it would have played out that way. And what he's assigning blame to I don't think that's necessarily fair of him because I think it's a lot more complicated than he lets on. And also it's kind of arrogant to think that if I had just stepped in, she would never have fallen off this path and never just drifted this far away from reality. If I had just stepped in, because I don't, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. And I don't really like that uh, position. That analysis. Yeah. You don't like that take? No. Well, isn't is is what is a marriage if not a, a partnership and an active partnership? I think I mean, B we all like says to believe it best. that for sure. But is that what it usually is in reality? Well, what B says at the end when they're <laughs> using the metaphor, I guess, of penguins to describe like human relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh when he says or when she says, um, that it was once thought that penguins mate for life, but it was then found out that about 20% of penguins do not mate for life. And what that means is that the remaining 80% actively choose to remain together forever. That active choice is, is to me emblematic of this partnership that two people are entering into. And obviously when you're going through four miscarriages and you know when you finally do have a child like she has a slim to not, a slim to zero chance of survival and has to have several re- reconstructive surgeries i mean that takes that takes an un an unspeakable toll on a person and so that line where where lg is in is talking to the therapist um played by judy greer which is really funny because I can only I can only ever see her as um, in her character in Arrested Development. I was gonna say that's what I've been doing, Karen. Yeah. <laughs> um, Spring break. Whoa! I know. <laughs> uh, LG says, usually when couples go through the types of things that that we do, it either brings you, it either brings them closer together or it drives them apart. And neither happened to us. I just kept you know, going to work and she like focused on raising, raising B. Um, that I think there is some, I, I wouldn't like, yeah, I would say, I think there is some culpability there where maybe he just didn't like, I think he should have understood the type of 
of stimulation that her that his wife needed to be able to be happy um because she certainly sacrificed you know her career to to raise her you know to raise their daughter and uh uh and you know while they did make a lot of money like he was he was clearly never around as much and and I think that factored heavily into him leaving Microsoft at the end of the movie. Uh, but I do. I think there is some some shared responsibility there. Like he did kind of just let her put her passion by the wayside. Hmm. I don't know. That I I'm going back and forth on this. Mm. I think it's 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 probably a little maybe it's just a little of both where in this classic cop out on this podcast but <laughs> i think it might just be a little of both where like yeah there might be some culpability there perhaps but um i don't know i think it would have been i think there were a lot more elements at play than just him working a lot and being absent and um i don't know i think she also it it wasn't just about staying home with her daughter i think it was just more of like she was just so happy to have her daughter be alive but also she had run before that like the 20 years prior because remember she has not done anything in 20 years that daughter is only what 16 15 yeah. so she had already been away from architecture for several years before um she had be and uh she had already run and not handled that well. I think it more than anything else, it was not at that time addressing it. It wasn't even with B. It was more of like that moment of like that kind of trauma of like your life's big, like the pinnacle of your career just being destroyed in that manner. That's when you go and talk to somebody. That's when you go and like figure out how do we move forward with this? Because he didn't realize how much of a toll that would take on her. And right. It's hard to blame him for that. I mean, it, I don't know. Like he respected her a lot. Like he talked about her brilliance and everything else. Like he probably just thought she would figure it out because she was brilliant, but she never figured it out. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, (laughs) spoken like a true creative who's his own worst critic. (laughs) Hell yeah. It's like, it's always my fault. It's never the world's fault. Right, I have like, to I internalize put my that own on guilt. somebody else. Like I, I think yeah. I agree with you in the companionship part, and that you push each other, and that that is ultimately what you want in a partner is someone who will challenge you and wants the best for you, and all of that. But there is only so much you can know about a person, and there are certain things that will always be internal, and that as much as you might love them or empathize and want to understand, there are just certain things that you won't. But also like that respect thing of just being like, you know, I trust you. I support you with whatever you do, but I'm not going to push you to do that thing because I think that's what you want to do. And that's how it may have come across to her if he had done that. I see. Yeah. You know what? I think I, I think I do think it's a little of both because it is impossible to, to completely know a person. Um, and also I'm speaking from the perspective of a person who, by the way, has not been married for 20 plus years. No, but you definitely are. You've, you've romanticized that idea. Like you are all the way in on that, Philip. I'm all. I'm. <laughs> like you've already like penciled it in. in. Like I think it's funny is that you clearly see yourself as a man who's been married for 25 years already. Like that's like yeah. part of your your yeah, nature. 
I've, I've, I'm in retirement right now. Yeah. I have a house on Sausalito, and I drive a, a convertible VW Bug. What do you drive? <laughs> a re- renovated VW Bug from like the 60s. Flower power, man. What do you drive, Philip? Um, well, it depends. It depends. Uh, on Tuesdays, I take the Batmobile. Um, and usually the rest of the week, I like to use a, a bird scooter. Do you actually have a scooter? No. Okay. No. I was I'm, like, oh my God. At home. I haven't had a need to have a car um, since moving back from, from New York. And I was in LA for such a short period of time that I didn't get a car either. But I, but I will tell you this. I won't leave anything to the imagination. I'll tell listeners straight up that I think my first, my first car purchase will probably be a Volvo. <laughs> <laughs> Not built for speed, built for comfort. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm safe, ladies. I'm, I'm a safe guy. What can I say? I've got oh, a soothing voice. The safety ratings are in. Not only on his car choice, but on Philip Musay, the guy. I'm yeah, I'm. I'm the safe choice. No, I'm just kidding. That's that's a ridiculous thing to say. You are the safe. Choice. I'm a man. I'm I've a man about of this several times. What? I don't know how many um, more times we have to have this conversation. We're going around. And no, and I resent. Bro. I resent that that I'm thought of as as some kind of safe choice. I I would. I, I think that's false advertising. Um, <laughs> so what this really I is is false Philip is uh, not comfortable in his own skin yet. No, I don't think I'm going to buy a Volvo. I think I would probably buy like a Corvette or something. No, you would not. I think I would. I, I mean, I'd love to be wrong on this one. <laughs> I would love more than anything else to be wrong uh, on this one. I thought about a Tesla as well. I um, could see that. The only problem is like... Elon Musk. Uh, well... Yes and no, but also I just don't want to be stranded anywhere. Um, True. And it's not the type of car that you take across the country. You know what I mean? Like it's a very local car. Well, you also have to – I mean you could. You just have to be like really proactive in like managing checkpoints and knowing where you are and all that kind of stuff. Like, oh, if we go here, then we have to be here by this point because I'll be exactly. out of – like, yeah, you exactly. have to really, really – you have to be a good planner to be a Tesla driver, I think. Mm. Yeah, that's not me. That's not me. I like to keep my options open, even if one of those options what is. What are you talking about? You're absolutely a planner. Total meltdown. I'm not a planner. I'm absolutely not a planner. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> I can become a planner if you if you'd like uh, for a day, and then I'd probably throw up or um, gouge my right eye out. Um, okay, can't well, bring it back to this. <laughs> I had forgotten about it for like a solid thirty minutes, and then you're like, you know what? What if this I is not about you. This is about this is about my my unwillingness to have a a series of plans that work out the way i think they want i'm 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 open to adventure i'm open to shooting shooting from the hip a bit you know mm. if anything that 2020 has taught me it's just nothing ever goes according to plan ever <laughs> what 2020 has taught me more than anything else is just keep jumping out of windows ooh please explain that metaphor if it is one it is one um okay. i it, it's just so easy as you know philip um i'm often in my own head and yes i uh, our brains are a bit like my mind is my best worst enemy and yeah i 
I just think overthinking ruins so many lives and our brain, like we're usually wrong. Like certain, like we're usually wrong and we are so scared of, Oh, what this person's going to think or how this job is going to go. Or what if I go here? What if I go there? What if I move here? What if I buy this car? What if I do this? What if I do that? Like you, your brain naturally just has a defense mechanism where you're like, Oh no, that can't work. Um, we, we, we focus on the negative, but, by and large, when you keep jumping on windows, you just, you feel better. I, I just feel better. And I've taken a lot more chances in 2020. I've experimented a lot more. I've just been like, you know what? Why not try it? And I think that is a really important thing in life is just understanding that whatever you're really all that afraid of, like whether it's job stuff, whether it's college stuff, whether it's anything like that, if you're interested in it, like, just jump out the window like it's not going to be that scary it's never as scary as you think it is our brains always craft a far more terrifying scenario than what actually transpires and i think that's an important lesson and if you can just be conscientious of that fact on a daily basis then you're better off for it so i've been very much proactive in this this approach of just like you know what Ah, I'm just going to keep going. And you speak it into existence where you're just like, yeah, it's not scary anymore. Like I had so many goals or thoughts that I was just like, I talk myself out of, or I'd be nervous about it. But like, I can't do it. But then you start, you say it out loud enough times and you actually put those things in motion. You're like, Oh, I can do that. Yeah. You'd be surprised at what you can actually do. If you just say you can do it and then just jump out of a window. That's inspiring. That's inspiring, buddy. It's, um, it's also, it, yeah, it's like, this is one of those years where I think, uh, collectively, like the, the, like the level of like anxiety in society has just gone through the roof. Um, and, in, in, in the U S that is, um, just because, I mean, <laughs> you look around and it's, it feels like, uh, the, the world is crumbling, um, I think it takes a special type of focus and courage to continue to, to jump out of windows, especially if what lies below is ostensibly on fire. Um, keep doing it. I'll see you. I'll see you in the blaze, brother. <laughs> see you down below. The, not, not hell, the, the wind, the fire beneath the window that we're jumping out of. Mm-hmm. I like it. Um, either could be true ostensibly. Um, yeah, I just, you know, take chances, trust your gut. Um, Unless your unless your gut like hurts Mm. in which case maybe take some Pepto. Okay. But if your gut is, is feeling all right, then then you're a-okay i'm a genius (laughs) 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 me and me and my metaphors my extended conceits i gotta i gotta start i should like write a book of conceits jump out of jump out of a burning window into the blazing abyss below and all shall be well in the world inspirational stuff man inspirational well that's all i've got 
Were we talking about where you go Bernadette? We were at some point. <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Are we what are we watching next week? Oh, it is my choice. It is my choice. I'm so excited. Oh, what are we watching next week? Let me pull Oh, I know we're gonna watch. We're back to Jake Week. Jake Week. Prisoners. Okay. Prisoners, okay. That's a that's a gnarly movie. Have you seen it? No. Oh yes. This is gonna be good. You're not <laughs> I was gonna just be gonna. Happy. I'm just gonna watch the 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 Jake Gyllenhaal canon. You're not. Is this gonna... becoming the 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 Musay and Thomas and Gyllenhaal podcast? God, to dream, right? <laughs> a man's got a dream, and a man's um, got to create. No, you, you you we have to do it. Unfortunately. Okay. It's too I'm important in. to this this podcast's uh, trajectory that we we do prisoners because, like the I am so excited for your moroseness and just how sad this movie's gonna make. Man, me. why are you putting me in this in this place? It's like, just a chokehold. It's a corrosive sadness. We're going into the darkness. Why can't we watch Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? I, That's a great film, by I've the never way. Never seen it. Oh, buddy. I swear to God, if you Dick, pick this, if you pick this, and then anytime soon, I'm, I'm, we're, we're fighting. No, I just don't think that this, that film is not ready. I don't think, I don't think you've deserved to, to review it yet. Also, just no musicals in this podcast. Yeah, well, well, we're gonna have to push the on <laughs> eventually. We'll start with like the the greatest showman. Oh, and then maybe uh, we'll we'll definitely have to do Les Mis. We'll just do like a like a tribute to Hugh Jackman. Why do you hate me? I don't. I don't. I just hate your sensibility. <laughs> <laughs> the Greatest Showman made four hundred and thirty-five million dollars. Congratulations! That's, it's a you, musical. You're, tell, you're telling me. You're telling me. That that doesn't merit some attention. I'm saying it's not a movie for me. I just, I don't get musicals. They're just not for me. Okay, okay, okay. We'll start you slow. Hamilton. No interest. Wow, this just just (laughs) got really dark, didn't it? We talked about this. I have no interest in Hamilton. Like, never, never showed an interest. But, like, you know what? It makes a lot of people happy. They listen to the soundtrack on the way to work. Like, good for them. I'm not going to tell you like you shouldn't enjoy those things. I'm saying that's not for me. I'm saying that is something that give, brings pain in my life. That is painful for me. Okay, you're you're telling me that Bohemian Rhapsody brought you pain. Well, yeah, that's a that's kind of a painful movie. Absolutely, and I wouldn't watch it. Who cares about Queen? Brother, not my band. Never listened to a I know Queen a, song really. I know a great organ donor who can get you a heart. Mm. You want one? Mm. Just not my deal, bro. Not my deal. Okay. It's okay. We all have different tastes. And, like, I understand my taste. And I under- I'm not going to lie to you and put on this facade that I would enjoy a musical. I, I- so you're telling me you're not going to watch West Side Story? Absolutely not. Or In the Heights? No. Man. I got to reconsider our working relationship, my friend. I just, I'm amazed. This is, this is scary. You're really pro-musical. Th- Do you want me to go through, like, the best music like have you seen well clearly you haven't uh an american in paris no oh this is this is not good i'm gonna we're gonna have to have like an mgm month 
<laughs> like an MGM, like 1940s. Just throw it way back. Um, yeah, don't worry. I'll I'll take care of everything. This sucks. Don't, don't I worry. shouldn't have said anything. Yeah, no, we'll be okay. A Star Is Born. No. Just, no, not at all. Nothing. No. Nothing at all. Okay. No. Okay. 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 Yeah, no, just just asking. Who needs La La Land when you have a place beyond the pines? <sighs> wow. Yeah. Well, see, spoken like someone who truly needs a La La Land. <laughs> who needs La La Land when you have mortal violence? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, okay. We'll we'll get you there. We'll get you there. If you watch a musical, I'll I'll look at a picture of an owl. I'll talk to you next week, Phil. <laughs> uh, all right. I'll see you, buddy. <laughs> Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.